It is possible to be thankful every moment, every day. It, it takes practice and humility. It takes vision and ability. It takes practice and humility. It takes vision and ability. Hi, and welcome to Tell Me What Happened, the podcast that features people from all walks of life talking about real events from their childhood and how those events impacted their lives. I'm your host, Jay Rehack. And I love listening to stories from people's childhoods, which also help me understand who those people are. Tell Me What Happened is sponsored by Sidelining Publishing, publishers of quality books, including Susan Salador's children's book, I've Got Peace in My Fingers, available worldwide wherever quality books are sold. Tell Me What Happened is also sponsored by LaughSaver.com. Visit LaughSaver.com and record your laughter. LaughSaver.com will keep it for you, now and forever. Your family will appreciate it. It's free, and it's easy to use. That's LaughSaver.com. Today, I'm honored to have as my guest, author and educator, Dr. Wilma Turner. Dr. Turner is the author of Everyday Racism in America and the Power of Forgiveness. Welcome, Dr. Turner. I look forward to hearing your story. Thank you, Jay. What I'm going to tell you is that I tell all my guests, which is I'm going to do my best not to interrupt you. So I'm going to turn off my microphone and just listen to your story. So if you're ready okay. to take over, the microphone is yours. Okay. Thank you. Well, my story starts, I'm starting in 1962 when I was 16 years old. And what happened is I helped to integrate this all-white high school in Charleston, Missouri. We went to court, a group of parents and the NAACP took the Charleston Board of Ed to court. And the reason was because at that time, all the black students had to go to the quote unquote black high school and all the white students went to the white high school. And even though that was unconstitutional, I mean, based on Brown versus the Board of Ed, 1954, I believe, it was unconstitutional to segregate in the public schools. So not only that, but in the Black high school, where I actually found three mentors, all the teachers there were Black, there were three teachers there who had gone to Tuskegee Institute, which is a HBCU, one of the historical black colleges. And they saw something in me. They said to me, you need to go to college. And I said to them, um, my mother doesn't have any money to send me to college. So they said, but there is a way to do it and we will help you. However, all of the things that you need are not here in this school. For instance, in the black high school, we only had two years of English. Most co um, colleges want you to have four years of English. We only had algebra one, for instance. We didn't have calculus in the black high school. We didn't have trade, we didn't have chemistry. We had a library, but there were maybe a hundred old raggedy books in the library. The thing is that it was not, even though it was separate, it was, was not equal. So I wanted to go to the best high school. 
not that I wanted to go to school with white children, but to the best high school. And so based on the court order, they had to let 14 of us into that school because those were the parents that had put, that had filed a suit. And in addition to that, there were two different school districts at that time. I lived in what was called Wyatt, Missouri. And kids from Wyatt had to go to school in Charleston, you know, small country towns. But anyway, it ended up being 14 of us. And I remember the first day of school, even though this is more than a half century ago, which sounds like a long time. But I remember that uh, the first day of school, some of the kids were outside when we were coming in. And some of them decided they were going to throw tomatoes at us. I guess that was the way to let us know we don't want you here. We don't need you here. Um, you know, this is our school. So I think maybe that was the first time I, I realized maybe this is what hate looks like because they didn't know us. They just knew that we were black, you know, they were white, we were trying to come to their school. So in addition to that, that first day, I remember that my first class was a literature class. And I was a junior by that time because up until that time, all the black kids had to go to the black high school. And so I went there for my freshman and sophomore year. So by the time I went to Charleston High School, I was a junior. And my first teacher, she gave us seats. Three or four of us were juniors. And so, you know, when we were looking for our seats, she said to sit there in the back of the room because all of the seats had already been assigned. And um, I was thinking to myself, we're in the back of the room again. And then she said, I've never taught Negroes before. So Negroes is kind of in between being called, you know, N-word and being called Negro, which is what Black folks were called back then. But things like that, that it just, it's like people are deliberately using words to hurt you and, and to let you know that you're not welcome here. So once we left class, and you have to walk down the hallway to get to your next class. It was like Moses parting the Red Sea because all the white kids kind of went on both sides of the hallway, you know, up against the lockers to let the black kids come by. And, you know, we, they called us the N-word. Everybody knows what that means nowadays. They would take black shoe polish and write on our lockers, go home. You know, we don't want you here. And they would find old pictures of old, ugly, I guess, I don't know, maybe homeless black people and tape them to our lockers so that when we got to school already, you know, there's something there that shows their hostility. So it, it occurred to me that maybe they were thinking that black kids were not smart that we're all too dumb to go to this white school. You know, we don't have the, the academic ability. So even though some of the kids that went there with me, I know, I remember one girl, she fought somebody every day because when they called her a name, she'd punch them in the mouth. But I have never been a fighter, not that way anyway. I decided that my fight 
would be academically. And I needed to show them how smart I was and, and just how smart black people are in general. And so I decided to study, which is what I did. And that first, it was October when we got there. So at the end of that first semester, I was on the honor roll. And I was, you know, I'm so happy that they can see my name. It seems to me I was at the top of the honor roll. And I'm, I'm still going to try to find that somewhere because that was a long time ago. I know I specifically was on the honor roll. And I was so proud of myself because I, I'm saying now, you know, I've shown them. Look at that. You know, I'm on the honor roll. <laughs> In addition to that, I decided I was going to, I've always loved to sing. And so I persuaded my best girlfriend to get into the glee club with me. I wanted to be anywhere they did not want me to be. So Betty and I got in the glee club. Betty was a soprano. I'm an, I'm an alto. So that means that we got a chance to blacken up the glee club because she's over there and I'm over here. And then uh, the, the next thing that happened was I decided they had an oratory contest. They call, they called them declamatory contests back then. So what you would do is learn something and get up on stage and, you know, present it. So I did that. I was really good, too, because I was everything I did, I tried extra hard. I remember I learned this monologue called Gossiping Gertie. Uh, the thing is that Gertie... And it's humorous. Gertie was talking to her imaginary children. The whole thing was imaginary. And while gossiping on the phone to a girlfriend. And her children were getting into all kinds of bad things, you know. So anyway, the audience, they I guess they forgot for a minute that I was Black. They were applauding and they enjoyed being entertained. And I won second place. I was really good, though. I should have run first place, but I guess they said, you know, we can't really let her win first place because this is one of the people who came over here by court order and we didn't really want her over here. So, you know, we've got to kind of tone that down. And so I started to think of myself as, you know, I, I can do this. Any of the things that they say that I can't do, I really can do. And so, and, and then I noticed that I used to kind of, uh, when, I, when we first got there, teachers would not give you a break. I mean, if you forgot to cross a T, that was a minus one. Uh, if you didn't put a dot at the end of the, you know, the teachers didn't want us there either. Didn't put anything at the uh, question mark, some mark at the end of a sentence, that was a minus one. And so I started to, even though I got good grades, and I noticed that some Times, you know, somebody would try to talk to me, uh, some of the white kids, and I would cover up my paper just because I don't want you to see what I have on my paper because now you know I'm smart. So now you want to talk to me, but I don't want to talk to you. You know, the other thing I remember is that there was one young boy, I guess he must, he was in high school. And he was the only person that ever said anything nice to me the whole time I was at that school for two years. He's the only one that I can remember. And he used to smile sometimes. And he would say hi, kind of under his breath. He probably wanted to talk to me or to talk to us, but the other kids wouldn't allow that, you know, you know what they would call him back then. So 
even though I went through that, I learned that I'm really, I'm smart. I'm just as smart as anybody else. If I apply myself, uh, and it doesn't matter what you say about me, what matters is what I think about myself. That makes, that's more important. And so from that point on, I, I just, I dealt with the racism part, but I knew that, you know, because I had gone to church from the time I was a little bitty girl, I remember, you know, I was about three years old. Of course, I was, I was three when my father passed away. And so my mother raised me on her own. But from the time I was a little girl, I was at church. And I remember you're supposed to love everybody. I never learned hate. I didn't know what that was all about. And so even though I fought back, and I learned to curse too. I don't know where I learned that because my mother never used foul language. I learned it somewhere because that was one of my defense mechanisms when somebody would call me the N-word. I just called them something as well. But anyway, when it all came down to almost time for me to graduate, one of the things that happened was that the Charleston Board of Ed had to reorganize all of the schools because of the court order. And so my second year there, there were other black kids in the school because everybody had to go to the same school. They were made to reorganize the whole school district. And so when I think about what I went through and what those of us went through when we were the first ones there, it was worth it just to, because now all of the kids go to the same school. They have a brand new school, reorganized school district, and it has nothing to do with your race, has to do with where you live in the city. But there's only one high school, so all of the black kids, white kids, everybody goes to the same school. And so, you know, what we went through, it was worth it just because we made it better for someone else. And when I see, I, I see my name in the court documents, which is another thing. I'm like, oh, that, that's really me. This really did happen. I didn't dream this whole thing. Because sometimes, you know, because it was 50 years ago plus, I'm like, do I remember that correctly? But I know that I can go and look in the court documents and see my name. And so I just, I thank God for that experience. It has taught me and allowed me to do something to help other people. So that's my story, Jay. Thank you, Doctor, for that very powerful, personal, formative story. I'm embarrassed as a human being that there ever was such a thing and still is such a thing as segregation and hatred based on really no defendable anything. Yeah, and it's, it's no accident. I, I believe we are all who we should be, okay. you know, and that God has a purpose for everybody's life. So that was just one of my purposes. Yes, well, you seem to have come out of it stronger and wiser, but could you just tell me now, you know, it's 50 years, but in those intervening 50 years since then, what has been the impact of that childhood experience, essentially integrating that school with the 13 other people? So what, what is the impact, would you say, of that particular moment, that particular time, that particular year. Can you just give me a, a sense of what happened in your life over the last 50 years that would 
sort of show us how that moment impacted you? Sure. Well, you know, after graduating from high school and those teachers that uh, helped me to get into Tuskegee College, I went there on what they called, um, it was a program for, you know, poor students. And you could go to school for five years. You work your whole way through. And that's how I got to college. And once I got to college, you know, it was in the 60s. So the whole civil rights thing was, was really up and running by then. And so I got involved in the protest, the, the civil rights, the demonstrations, that whole thing, because I guess I was set up for that, so to speak, because now I could do something. Actually, I could march and I can protest and I can do all of those things to let people know that these are my civil rights. And so that's how I got involved in the civil rights protests. And I remember uh, my mother was really scared. She thought that I would probably go to jail or maybe they would turn the dogs on me and all that stuff that she saw on television. And, you know, I, because I'm an only child, well, at least I, I was back then. She was afraid and I was I was going no matter what she said, you know, because I felt it was something I needed to do. If they turn the dogs on me, let it be. If they spit on my face, whatever they wanted to do, I was determined that this is where I needed to be and I needed to let people know these are my rights and I'm willing to fight for them. And then so after uh, graduating from college, I became a teacher. And it was interesting, though, that all of the kinds of things that I used to think about myself, well, I'm not really as good as these other people. That's why they don't want me here. I didn't want my students to think that. And so I made it my goal. And all of my students, I worked in the inner city my whole teaching life. All of my students were black, lived in inner city, most of them. I wanted to make sure that they knew that they were, and their ancestors were kings and queens in Africa and that they were smart and brilliant and creative and they could do anything they wanted to do if they put their minds to it. And so I felt it was my responsibility to teach these kids and to let them know that you can do anything that you want to do. And so I taught them some of the freedom songs that I learned when I was marching. I taught them about the civil rights demonstrations. And actually one time we had a sit-in, you know, with the principal's permission, because I didn't want to disrupt the school. But we sat in in front of the office at, at school to protest. We made signs so that they would get the whole thing about your civil rights and what I had gone through. And we were protesting the school lunches, which really should have been protested. Uh, we were protesting, you know, the fact that the recess was too short. But anyway, it, it, was a, it was a good thing. And even now, I have one or two former students that still keep up with me. After all of these years, I know where they are. They text me, they call me, and they say thank you for what you did for, for us because now they're contributing members of society. And I did not you know, want to teach them hatred. For one thing, my faith would not allow me to hate anybody, no matter what you did to me. 
I learned that if I wanted to be forgiven, if I wanted God to forgive me for some of the things I've done that I should not have done, then I needed to be able to forgive other people. And I also learned that, you know, forgiveness is something you hold within yourself. It bothers you. It doesn't bother the other person. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to make sure that my students knew, not to hold, you know, all of the kinds of things that I was telling them that happened, not to hold that against, you know, the people that were doing it, but to free themselves by the power of forgiveness. And, you know, that saying that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And I really do believe that. And so now, I mean, I, I feel that all the things that happened to me were, were a part of God's plan. And what's even funnier than that, Jay, is when I did my dissertation, I had five white men on my dissertation committee. And I thought it was funny. I said, God, you really do have a sense of humor, right? So, but, I mean, each and every one of them were just wonderful. They did everything they could to help me to do what I wanted to do, which was my book is actually my dissertation, Everyday in America, Everyday Racism in America, came from my dis dissertation. So that's my story. Well, thank you for that, Doctor. I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate all that you have tried to do and have done as a consequence of some of the uh, early suffering that you've, that you've experienced. And I, again, I, I just I feel terrible as a human being that any other human being has had to go. Well, you shouldn't, though, Jay. You, you, you didn't do anything. No, nah, but, you know, I'm part of the, part of the human experience. <laughs> You're part of that, that group of people that they're talking about nowadays. <laughs> Yeah, we're all in it together. And when I see suffering on the uh, on it's outside of me, but as it's it's selective or whatever the right word mm -hmm. is, then I say to myself, well, as an individual, though, that's but but you're, you know, you're I think now, as an individual, you do what you can do yeah. to correct what you see. When you see something going on, do something like John Lewis said, sometimes you have to make some good trouble. If you see things, something that's happening and it's not right, say something, do something. That's what you can do. You can't do anything about what happened in the past. Well, thank you, doctor, for all the good trouble you have caused over time <laughs> and that you're continuing to do. Yes. I love the idea of forgiveness as a central theme to your work also. I feel gratified that you, that you have it in your heart to forgive. And, uh, oh yeah. On the show. So thank you, thank you for allowing me to do this. All right, that's our show. I'd like to thank Dr. Turner for that deeply personal, painful childhood story. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Sidelining Publishing, publishers of quality books, including Susan Salador's children's book "I've Got Peace in My Fingers," and Scott Suma's. Timely work, Don't Act Like the President, available worldwide through Amazon.com or wherever quality books are sold. Also like to thank our other sponsor, LaughSaver.com. LaughSaver.com invites you to go to their website, record your laughter for free. They'll keep it for you now and forever. Your grandchildren and their grandchildren will thank you for it. 
That's LaughSaver.com. Now we're going to end this show as we often do with Susan Salador's classic, Every Moment, Every Day. Until next time, this is Jay Rehack asking you all to stay safe out there and try not to hurt anybody. It is possible to be thankful every moment, every day. It, it takes practice and humility. It takes vision and civility. It takes practice and humility. It takes vision and civility. It takes possible to be wisdom to see it every day. It takes practice and humility. It takes vision and civility. It is possible to be thankful to see it every day. It takes practice and humility, it takes vision and civility, it takes practice and your wisdom to see it as a ability, it takes practice and your wisdom to see it as a ability, it takes beauty and the wisdom to see it everywhere. It is possible to be thankful every moment.